Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We have a great show lined up for you today. It's focusing on a value that has been held in high esteem throughout Indian country, uh, really throughout indigenous populations worldwide. But it's a value that has, in many places, slipped off the radar screen as far as Western populations. We're speaking about physical activity. We're going to do it in a very interesting and compelling way. I've got a great guest to join us for today's dialogue. It's Dr. Naomi Congello. Dr. Congello, great to have you with us today. Thank you, Dr. DeRose. Naomi, you have been doing some uh, really exciting work. You've especially been focusing on uh, populations that are more disadvantaged, minority populations, and physical activity. Tell us a little about your current work, and after you give us kind of an overview, we'll talk a little bit about how you got there. So, Dr. DeRose, I did a dissertation project for my doctorate degree in nursing. Actually, back in 2015. And I was working with a population of uh, Mexican Americans, actually. And that's where I developed this interest in physical activity as I saw the rates of cardiovascular disease, not only in the Mexican American populations, but throughout. And I thought that it would be interesting to work, to do some work in that area. This is really exciting. And of course, uh, Inter-America, uh, whether it's Mexico or other countries, and, and often significant indigenous bloodlines there. And we're speaking about a real challenging area, like you mentioned, this connection between cardiovascular disease and inactivity. A lot of folks have heard a lot about those connections, but as a public health uh, educator, as a teacher in a nursing school, Tell us a little bit, if a student came to you and said, why are all these people concerned about physical activity, what would you tell them? Well, I would say that there is a misconception in how physical activity really works to help decrease cardiovascular disease. Because what I found in my work and my research, for example, is that people view activity as a combined activity that's, uh, let's say, leisure time physical activity versus occupational activity. And often those different types of activities impact rates of cardiovascular disease differently. Hmm. Because one can be stressful and one cannot be stressful, right? Right, right. So basically, let's talk maybe about heart disease. Are you saying that when we look at the research, someone who might come into my office as a patient, and I might say, you know, it's really important to get physical activity, and they say, hey, I, you know, I work in this store, I'm on my feet all day long, I get plenty of exercise. Are you saying that they still may benefit from doing some exercise, some type of activity in their leisure hours? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because uh, work 
that's manual labor, which we know occurs a lot, but it's not necessarily beneficial for cardiovascular health because it's not the type that one can relax when doing. This is very interesting. So basically, as we're speaking to people throughout Indian country and beyond, one of these kind of narratives, like I mentioned, that I hear from people is busy at work, so I've got plenty of activity. I just want to rest, kind of, you know, lay around when I get home, even though there may be many demands around the house, too. Do we have any idea why that would make a difference? Is, does it really have to do with, you know, how much you're getting your heart rate up? Does it have to do with your mental outlook? Do, have, has anyone really sorted that out, Dr. Congello? Well, I can't say I've looked very deeply into it, but just on a very superficial level, I can say that that's what the research has shown, that people who take time to even go on a vacation, at least yearly, that they tend to have less stress, they live longer. And so kind of tying that in with what I call mini vacations, when you go on a little walk, even during your lunch break, mm. that that can have benefits to your health because you're not just, you know, even on your break, checking emails or doing things that can you're, we're never in a relaxed state, I would say, because we're constantly working. I really appreciate this emphasis and kind of, you know, expanding the dialogue. And maybe, you know, we're going to dive into this some more. But before we do, I think your personal story is interesting. You and I, and actually our families crossed paths many years ago. We worked together out on the East Coast. And you've gone on and, you know, professionally really accomplished a lot of things. First starting out as a as a registered nurse, I mean, this is not necessarily the typical trajectory for someone who goes into nursing to end up a professor at a university. So tell us, first of all, where you're at, and then tell us uh, how you got there. Okay, so I am currently an assistant professor at Cal State Channel Islands, at California State University Channel Islands. And so I've been there since 2015. Prior to that, after I met you, Dr. DeRose, we were both at a lifestyle behavioral change uh, center, right? And then so a few years after that, I got interested in nursing because I always liked health. Even as a child, I would read health books and somehow finally put it together. Uh-huh. And That's so great. And, and went into nursing, and from there, there on, I would say a big part of it is mentorship and just meeting people that encouraged me along the path and just went from one degree to the next and never thought I would end up where I am today, but thankful. Now, you are probably mm -hmm. at the most unique either California State or University of California. I know different systems, but campus. I mean, I hear Channel Islands. I'm thinking, well, is this woman, you know, working out on some island? And tell us a little bit about that interesting name because there's a lot of Cal State campuses, but, but yours, at least from ones I've heard of, that has the most interesting name. Yes, and I have to say it's a very, um, I'm looking for the term, it's not, Hmm. I can't find the word for it, but it's not what it sounds like. It's not on an island at all. 
it's close to the Channel Islands, I'll say that. But I know students ask all the time, like the prospective students, they ask, well, is it, you know, do we need to take a boat to get there? How? <laughs> but it's actually on the main coast, next to the Pacific coast. And it's a beautiful campus, I'll say that. But it's it's not an island. So for folks, we have, we have a lot of listeners in California, of, of course, a huge native population in California. Geographically, put us somewhere on the map in California. What larger city are you near? It's about an hour from Los Angeles. Okay. So more north of L.A., is that safe to say? Correct. Okay. And what are the Channel Islands? So I've heard of Catalina Island. Is that a Channel Island? Yes. The Channel Islands are some islands that are <laughs> not, they're kind of spread out. They're not close at all to the university. And I believe that's how it got its name from being close to the islands. That's all I can think of to say, really. Okay. So basically, if you just want to go to a nice campus and you like Southern California, this should be one of your options. Am I sizing it up correctly? Yes, yes, and it's beautiful, and it's it's uh, close to everything. It's close to nature. It's close to the city area if you need to get there. So, Okay, well, you put in a good advertisement for your university. And one of the questions that often does come up when we're speaking to indigenous populations is, you know, is there a significant native population? Are there support services for minority students? What would you say, let's say a Native American student listening right now says, wow, you know, I'm, I'm in Arizona, or maybe I'm in New Mexico. Uh, I've always wanted to go to school in California. This sounds like a, an option for me. Would you say, hey, we've got a lot of support services. This would be a good option for you. How would you answer that question? Absolutely. So our, our school is a Hispanic service institution. So it's really focusing on um, minority populations. It doesn't matter what whatever population of ethnic minority and even all populations, I would say. And plenty of services in place. I'm very impressed with the work they do. That's great. So California State University Channel Islands is where you're currently an uh, assistant professor, if I got the terminology right? Correct. Okay, so you and I work together, actually, New York City area out on the East uh, Coast. You've made it all the way across country. We heard some about your academic journey and involved mentorship. But how about that move, I mean, across the country? I mean, maybe it took place in stages, but... Uh, was that a challenge for you and your family to make that uh, transition? It was actually a fun adventure. That's how I would take it. And it was something that was not well thought out. It was just <laughs> something that, if if I can tell you this in a nutshell, basically it was the, the weather that made us move from New York because of mm. all the snow and my family wanting to be in a nice place with sunny weather and me having just graduated nursing school with one plus year of experience the move was really easy because there's there was so much work out in California and we actually just packed 12 bags we tried to sell our stuff 
we had 12 suitcases and we shipped our cars and we just moved and wow. it was exciting. Well, this is impressive. So not only have you done a good job advertising your university, but I think, you know, we might have some uh, literary agents saying, hey, here's folks who could write a book on how to move cross country. I know some of these folks are taking multiple U-Hauls, but you guys really uh, mastered this. It kind of really sounds like almost started over again, right? As far as, you know, your surroundings, other than those 12 bags, 12 suitcases. Well, Dr. DeRose, it was not worth it to sell what we had. <laughs> we figured it was, <laughs> we gave stuff away um, because on the day we planned to sell everything, it rained so bad that nobody came. And so we just said, okay, so we're moving next week. So whatever you want, just come and take it. And we just felt like it would not have been worth it to ship and drive all that stuff. So we just flew and we shipped our cars, like you said. And it was a nice start over to move into a house with nothing there. You know, all the junk was left behind. It, it was beautiful. Well, that's great. Yes. I love the story. I love the story. Uh, some folks might be able to relate to that. Others may not be able to. But uh, that is, uh, I find that very exciting. Now, was that after you had your doctorate in hand that you took that position out there? Or did you move out there prior to getting your doctorate? So I did have a bachelor's degree at that point. I did a two-year degree first, and then I did my bachelor's degree. And then I did my master's in California about probably a year or six months after I moved here. I started and then went on to the doctorate degree here. Wow. Well, that's an exciting story. I think it's a, it should be an inspiration for folks who... Uh are wondering where a career path can take you. And, and I'm a real advocate for people, if they're not sure how far they want to go in a healthcare career, start out with some kind of entry-level healthcare career. Start out with nursing or being a medical assistant or a PT assistant. And once you get in the field, if you like it, you can go on and get further education, but at least you have some gainful employment and uh, you could build on that. So thanks for sharing your story. We have to step away just briefly, Dr. Congello. We're going to come back, trying to learn some things about exercise, practical insights. I'm Dr. David DeRose, Dr. Naomi Congello sticking by. Do the same, some really practical things that can help you and those you love coming up right after these messages. Don't go away. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We are continuing a dialogue with Dr. Naomi Congello. She's been sharing her own life journey and how she got involved with studying physical activity, especially in minority populations. We're going to be digging much deeper into that topic, things that are practical that can make a difference for your own physical activity, your own health when it relates to your heart, your blood vessels, whether you're concerned about high blood pressure or diabetes or heart disease. But Naomi, your story is just so fascinating to me, and I know There's a lot of folks in Indian country and a lot of our listeners who may not even be native that as they're listening to your story, they're saying, you know, I can relate to this, Uh, ending up basically in a new place as really pretty much a student. You first came out to California to work on your master's degree, if I understood uh, that timeline. You had a couple of children at that point, too. Is that right? What uh, ages were they? Yes. So my children were... 10 and 13 when we moved out here and they were very excited to move so that was not an age where they were wanting to stay behind so it was pretty easy okay and your husband i'm assuming had to look for new work and everything coming across country Absolutely. But he was also ready to get away from the cold. He's lived there in New York all his life. And so was not any resistance there. It was his idea, actually. It was actually, if I can go back a little bit, I did not want to come here because Uh I loved where I worked and the people I worked with. But I would say series of events that led me to change my mind and then I saw how God was working things out in a different way and that included me 
going off the road during a snowstorm. Oh my! And fortunately, it was not. It, it wasn't a big accident or anything. But uh-huh. we had moved to upstate, even further away from Living Springs area. Mm-hmm. And uh, was that Putnam Valley? I believe. Yes. Yeah. So what Naomi is doing for those of you that are joining in on the conversation. By the way, we're glad you're listening to today's show. So we used to work about an hour north of Manhattan. If you know the geography of New York City, you've got New York City, and then as you go north, you have Westchester County, then you go up into Putnam County. So we were just up there in Putnam County. We had a fairly large campus. We'd call it a lake in many places of the country, but they called it a pond there. So a a very nice location where we ran a residential lifestyle change program. So I was a physician there, and Naomi and her family were on the staff there as well. Yeah, so you move further north from there, so more into upstate New York, and then we're, you weren't so uh, worried about the weather, but kind of got your attention when you slid off the road in a snowstorm. Am I hearing that? Yes. So you started thinking maybe your husband had some insight into where it might be best for you guys? Right, right. And it really teaches you how to work in a relationship too, right? Because um, here I was thinking, well, no, this is really good. I love it. I'm just finally getting into nursing. These people are great. But then after I went off the road, wasn't too much. It was just terrifying for me because it was late at night and I was stuck in a snowstorm. No one could find me. Oh, wow. That was the end for me. (laughs) So that's when I decided, well, you know, I'm a nurse. I I shouldn't be driving in the snow if I have other options. Okay. Okay. Well, now for the record, actually, we have a lot of Native listeners and supporters in uh, the Northeast. uh, And uh, I have good friends who are up there in upstate New York right now. They might even be listening to the show. We appreciate you that have a sense of call to service there, but we're glad that the Creator does call some other people in the other settings as well. We're glad that, you know, you and your family, Naomi, got situated out there in California. We were speaking off air, and I think the other thing that a lot of people may not realize, a lot of people think, well, health professional, nurse, I mean, that's a good uh, financial field to be in. But when you got a couple of children, um, even with a husband who's working, it can still be challenging. And you felt there were also some doors that really opened as far as your education. Tell us a little bit about that, because I think a lot of people fear getting more education is going to just run them thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in debt. Is that pretty much your story as well? No, actually, uh, that's why I believe um, the providence of God really is amazing because with my story, I, when I came to California, there was a shortage right then, which there still is a shortage for nurses, but um, it was at the point where they were paying people bonuses to be employed Mm -hmm. at the hospitals. And so if you recall, I left everything behind. So I was in great financial need at that point. So (laughs) it was very inviting to have that. And not only that, but opportunities to go to school and fellowships and things like that, that unfortunately, I didn't have those back on the East Coast. Now, things might have changed 
But all I can say is that um, I just happened to be where, or God led me, I should say, to places where I got the funding I needed so that now I'm, I don't have any loans or anything like that to um, to pay back. So that was a blessing. That's fantastic. Well, I think that's just an encouraging message for anyone tuning in. If you're looking for further education, um, I know there's some great tribes that have resources that help uh, tribal members get education. I know other tribes are more uh, challenged financially. Um, there are a lot of programs that do help various minority students. And uh, Naomi, you have, I want to say, indigenous background, but from different parts of the world, right? You know, if someone looked at you, they might think you're Native or maybe Hispanic, but tell us a little bit about your background. So I like to say I look like everything. So whatever, whoever I'm with, I'm part of them. Um, so my great-grandparents are from East India, but they moved to South America in the little country of Guyana, previously known as British Guyana. So if you know, there are three Guyanas, right? French, Dutch, and British. So I happen to be the one from British Guyana, and that's where I was born. Now I moved out here, and I lived mostly with Americans, and my husband is Italian, so I feel like I'm a little bit of everything. Okay. Well, you definitely can relate cross-culturally, and we appreciate your sharing with us on today's show. So, fascinating background. I love your story, and uh, you know, love how you saw the Creator working through things to get you where you're at. Now how you're giving back, making a difference, especially in people who, honestly, populations that don't get as much attention you know, historically as far as help with practical lifestyle things. So, Let's come back to this research interest now. You, at one point, working on a doctoral degree, you'll ultimately get that awarded in 2015, as you mentioned earlier. But you had a special interest in working with uh, Mexican-American women. How did that all come together? So the first job I had here working on a telemetry unit, so that's caring for patients with heart disease, and they're being monitored by a device, right, to keep checking their heart rhythm and heart rate and things like that. So that was the area I worked and my interest in cardiovascular disease and also working in an area that's highly populated with Mexican-Americans. And so I thought it would be interesting to study that population since they were available at that moment where I was working. So that's how I really became involved in that. So why Mexican-American women? Because I know during the study, we had this question, why, why women? The men wanted to be in the study. Well, in research, it's good to narrow our field so that we can focus in one area and then we can extend it out. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's how we ended up looking at and that specific population. Well, I mean, I really appreciate that emphasis. I mean, I know for many years, having been doing this for a number of decades, a lot of the early research, you know, with cardiovascular disease was in men. There was kind of this idea, at least uh, I can even remember in 
my medical school years where, where people tended to think, well, heart disease, that's more of a man's disease. Women are relatively protected from it. But of course, uh, we know heart disease doesn't discriminate based on gender. And so you, of course, were seeing that in real life on those telemetry units, a lot of women with heart disease. And uh, really, I'm thankful you took that uh, research microscope, if you will, and you know looked at the female population there in your part of the country. We want to come back and talk more about this, uh, Naomi. Dr. Congello is going to be sharing, I think, some things that could be transformative as far as your own uh, lifestyle, your own health. We are going to be uh, looking now at her research findings in our next segment. So I want to encourage you to stay by. Coming up in our second half of today's edition of the broadcast, lessons learned from research in minority populations, especially women, What kind of things can make a difference in your health, the health of those you love, especially as it relates to physical activity? More right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org. Or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov slash support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, Ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov slash meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. 
Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose for the second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. My guest today is Dr. Naomi Congello. Dr. Congello, in addition to sharing her own journey from um, a clinical nurse to a professor of nursing in the uh, Cal State uh, system out on the West Coast, is sharing with us some of her interests, especially in cardiovascular disease, disease of the heart, the blood vessels, and how we can make an impact with lifestyle, especially physical activity. Naomi, we learned about your interest in Mexican-American women, and I think we're all curious about how that research played out. What did you look at and what did you learn? Okay, so Dr. DeRose, this uh, study really took a long time. That's the first thing I'm going to say. (laughs) And we collected a lot of data on a lot of different factors and a lot of uh, individual characteristics of the women, which is very good because we were able to look at different um, variables, right? Different Mm -hmm. factors to see what really influenced their physical activity. Now, mind you, this research is focused on their perception, right? We're looking at how did they view things and how did they influence their physical activity. So as I'm listening to the design of your study, we're going to be expecting to learn from your research, at least in this population, the kind of things that we may need to look at if we're trying to motivate people to get physical activity or help them find their own motivation, maybe is a better way to say it, to be more physically active. Am I hearing that right? Yes. So tell us a little bit about what you found and how you structured the research. Okay, so we we looked at um, what, you know, people may be familiar with this type of framework that's called the ecological framework. So instead of looking at one factor to say, well, people are just not physically active because they don't want to be physically active, they choose not to, or, you know, for whatever reason we might think. But when we ask people what makes them less physically active or more physically active, that's important. If we're going to design programs to help them, then we need their input, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this was the study that involved uh, community partners, people that were able to provide insight into this particular population. And so, of course, this is the study that involved people that spoke Spanish, right? So... We needed translators, and we looked, back to your question, we looked at um, various factors, not just one area. We looked at um, the environmental factors. Mm-hmm. We look at individual factors, such as their age and comorbidities, people having various health conditions, right? We looked at um, sociocultural factors, and... So that's what the the ecological framework is that I was referring to. So you're getting this broad kind of perspective, looking at everything that might impact a person's choice to exercise or not to exercise. And, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people really appreciate that, and I know there's been a lot of folks that are starting to look at those bigger issues. So when you do that, how many women, I know you're collecting all this data, 
how many women did you actually have in the study? So we had a total of 117 women, but five of those women we found out were pregnant. So we actually did not include them because when people are pregnant, there could be various other factors. Mm -hmm. So um, we ended up with a total of 112 women. Okay. So started with 117, five of them pregnant, end up with 112. And um, I mean, that's a lot of people who collected a lot of data on. I know some people say, well, that sounds like a small study. But when you're collecting so much data, unless you've got a huge team or multiple centers involved, you can't, uh, I mean, 112 people, that's a lot to do that much uh, work with. Is that what you found or am I exaggerating how much the workload was? Well, it was a lot of work. And I have to say, if you're going for a doctorate degree, as you know, Dr. DeRose, you will know that you need to be passionate about it. So that's one thing my advisor said. If you're not passionate about it, you'll probably quit. And I'm glad that I'm so passionate about cardiovascular disease that I kept going. And yes, it involved a lot of people. When I counted, I think there were about 20 people involved helping with the study. And that's... Wow. And that's excluding the people that gave their instruments or their surveys and professors that helped with the writing the dissertation. So it was big. So is it fair to ask what you learned or are there some other things we need to understand about the study? Is it just, in other words, was it just getting this information or did you follow people over time and and look at changes, uh, or was it more looking at a point in time and what was affecting whether they were exercising or not exercising? Yes. Yeah, so at that point, uh, when I was studying it, there was still a need for to understand this population mm -hmm. better. So that's why, you know, we always start out learning first about the topic, and then we go on to a more longitudinal study. So it was a cross-sectional at one point, like you said. It was basically looking at their perceptions and how these factors influence their physical activity with a plan to do some type of intervention. So that's my next plan to do a study. And this time, if you were listening earlier, I mentioned about the men wanting to know how come they were not in the study. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I'm um, hopefully involving the men as well, because my study really focused on partner support uh, mm. for physical activity, because I had this hunch that, you know, if women, you know, it makes sense, right? If people are supported, then they will be more physically active. Mm -hmm. And so that's how the data played out as well, that it was very significant that women who received social support or partner support, as we called it, were um, more physically active. So if we're talking right now, we say, hey, here's some talking points. Here's some take-home messages. You know, one of them is if you want to be on a physical activity program, if you can find someone as a partner, I mean, great if it's in your own home, your own partner, but that's going to make a difference, going to make it more likely that you exercise and likely stick with it. What about other things that you learned? What could someone do? If they're listening right now, they say, I don't exercise. I know I should. Did Dr. Congello learn anything else that, that I can employ that might help me? Okay, so some other things I found. Now, this might sound a little controversial, but it does make sense. Residential density. 
this this, hmm. this is really was um very significant that people who live in areas that that are walkable, right? They can walk, there are streets to walk in, then they will have places to walk and will most likely walk, right? And be more mm -hmm. active. But then the downside of that is um, crime, crime rates, traffic. Mm -hmm. So those are things that will deter walking. So, but those are the influences that showed whether people will be more physically active or not. So I've heard a lot of discussion about this in public health circles where a lot of people, like you mentioned, you know, if there's crime, if it's not safe, people are afraid to go outside and exploring other options than for activity. And, you know, in some places there may be malls, but other places in rural areas, they don't have any kind of places to walk in. Maybe you're walking in a big department store, but even those may be hard to come by depending how rural your location is. So I know this was a descriptive study. You're trying to see what's going on, trying to understand this population. But as you're thinking about down the road, doing some you know kind of intervention, any ideas on what we could offer to someone who feels like, well, I'm not in a safe environment. I don't feel comfortable getting outside. How do we tackle things like that? Well, from my research, and I'm still writing a paper on some findings from this dissertation, but what I found from some of the qualitative studies where people give their input subjective data, right, on physical activity, I found that people that had support, again, like we were talking, or we were talking earlier about this, that they were more active. And one, okay, I'm trying to remember which study this was. I don't remember the exact study. But they did mention that if you have, for example, women who live in the same area mm -hmm. and they can walk in groups, that's one thing, mm. right? To fight off the fear of crime. Uh -huh. Also, people babysitting for each other. That's that's another concern. People not having childcare so they can go to the gym or even go for a walk, right? They can bring the kids, obviously. So there are creative ways that we can figure out. So if, if people don't live in rural areas, which we know there are other problems with that too, because the, the fear that it's so rural, is it safe mm -hmm. to walk there, mm -hmm. right? But that's why I think social support plays such a great part, because if you have friends and family working together, then it can combat those problems. I love what you're talking about, and I think this is so relevant to folks who maybe they're with a tribal health entity, maybe they work in a Native clinic, maybe, again, not dealing with Native populations at all. But the message I hear you giving is if we're looking to encourage patients, people, tribal members, however we're defining them, to get more physical activity, we need to think about these social variables as well, not just giving messaging about the importance of physical activity, but saying, hey, if we could get a group of mothers together, maybe one of them one day a week can babysit some of the others while the others are walking and take turns. Maybe they could provide that at a tribal level and like a, a, a tribal center, a community center. So I really like uh, the discussion because I think this is so relevant. 
What about other things that you found that seemed to make a difference as far as physical activity? I think those were the big things. Um, Some of the other things we looked at were um, like cultural factors, but the ones that I mentioned, those were significant. The other ones didn't really show. We looked at language and whether they had friends that were of the same culture, that that one was um, acculturation. So, but those were not really significant, but we did look at those factors. So basically what I hear you saying is we may feel more comfortable with people from our own language background, cultural background, but the bottom line is if you can get support, social support, even if it crosses those socio-cultural lines, that could still be powerful, can help you stick with an exercise program or even start on it to begin with. Am I hearing you right? That's right. Naomi, this is exciting stuff, and I know your research interests are not limited to physical activity. We're going to go in our final segment to another area that you're working with that uh, I think our listeners will be interested in. We're talking about some interesting things about training health professionals. It could impact you if you're looking for health professional education. It could impact you at a tribal level if you're involved with tribal health services. Stay tuned. Our final segment, uh, more of what uh, Dr. Congello is working with in her position there as a, a professor on a university campus. We'll be right back after these words. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to the final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose with Dr. Naomi Congello. One of the questions that uh, it's possible you've had, if you have any connection with tribal health concerns, maybe you work actually with a tribal facility, and one of the challenges is having just enough support, enough uh, personnel, real shortage of uh, nurses, doctors, other health professionals, and even challenges training them because of shortages of clinical staff, uh, teaching faculty. Dr. Congello, you're part of a nursing school. You're training nurses, and you folks have been facing those challenges. You've been trying to do some innovative things. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. As you mentioned, Dr. DeRose, yes, there is a shortage, and it's only continuing to get worse. So, of course, as faculty in academia, we're really concerned for the healthcare in general, all across the United States, and I'm sure extends out across the world. So just looking this morning at at some statistics, I saw that by 2033, there would be up to 124,000 physicians needed and 200,000 nurses per year. That's a lot. Wow, that's huge. Yes. So if someone's looking for a healthcare career and wondering about demand in the future. There's no no real question. There's a need. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know that we have a large, diverse population of people listening. And so not everyone wants to be in a healthcare profession, right? But I look at it that um, we have an aging population of people all across, regardless of ethnicity. And the need for healthcare is there, whether we work in a hospital clinic, whether we care for people at home, or in the community, we need people to help in healthcare. And so my part that I'm playing as a nursing faculty is really educating, like you said, but thinking of some innovative, some new ways, creative ways of how can we meet this demand, this growing demand with less nurses becoming available every year and less faculty becoming available every year. Mm-hmm. So we're interested in this, and especially as I've heard a little bit about what you're doing, I've even said, you know, with this model, theoretically, a a tribal hospital or something, they could say, we're going to offer training options here by using some of these new techniques. Maybe we don't have faculty right on site. So tell us a little bit about this, because I think it's really intriguing what you're doing. Okay, so there is a model that we found that originated really in Australia in the 1990s, and it really didn't take off that much or that fast as we thought it would, or one would think it would, because it wasn't really known that well. And so it's starting to grow more. And what that is, is that in traditional clinical, nursing clinical, I don't know how it works for doctors, but what we do have is one instructor to about 10 to 12 students, depending on their level, right? Mm -hmm. Higher levels, probably less students. And so you would need a faculty on site teaching those students. But if you think about it, you have one faculty with 10 students over 10 hours, 
that would give each student probably one hour of time, if that much, because the faculty is rounding on all of her students, right? Or his mm -hmm, students. Mm -hmm. So that's a big need for faculty. And when we have a shortage, it's, it's problematic because we can't have as many students, right? So the new way to get to it quickly is that this model that I mentioned is where we have nurses become the educators and they are educating the students at the bedside and you have the faculty overseeing, but the faculty doesn't need to be on site so that faculty can oversee more students, even multiple hospitals at the same time. And and then we have students getting more hands-on at the same time versus waiting for one faculty to teach 10 students in the clinical day. So that's it. So let's make it practical. So someone's learning some kind of bedside technique, you know, whether it's uh, cleaning, uh, addressing, uh, you know, maybe they've got an IV and you're, you're teaching some kind of practical skill. Whereas in the past, that faculty member would maybe do some group training, but then they'd want to work individually with each of the students. Now you've got the actual nurses who are doing these tasks day in and day out, that they're training the students, and the faculty is just providing some level of supervision. Am, am I understanding that correctly? Right. So for you personally, are you doing some of that oversight role? Are you supervising nurses, or are you more in an organizational or administrative capacity? So I'm actually on the supervising role. Uh, we started this in 2020, right in the height of the COVID pandemic. So it was actually mm -hmm. very ideal because we had the hospitals, limited people in the hospital and the problems with the shortage and getting students getting clinical hours. It really worked well. And we started at a surgical hospital small hospital, and that expanded out the following semester to the larger hospital that was affiliated with the smaller hospital. And it continues to grow to the semester we have another hospital. So we're hoping that it continues to grow so we can accommodate more students with less faculty since we have this shortage happening. So if someone's listening today, and whether it's a hospital or maybe an outpatient setting, and they say, you know, we see a lot of patients here. This would be a great opportunity for a student to train. We don't have a university nearby. Is it something where a tribe or a, an organization could reach out to a local university? Maybe that, quote, local is several hours away. Are universities looking for clinical sites is part of the question. Absolutely. So you have even in our area, we have two colleges and one university in our area. And we have limited hospital sites for those students to go to. So that is another problem that we're facing. But we're also thinking creatively again to use night the night shift instead mm. of just the day shift. We're thinking of using clinics and other sites. Okay. Well, it sounds like some exciting opportunities for people in tribal health to maybe uh... – bring some additional training opportunities right on site. I can't tell you I really have my fingers on the pulse of what's going on in Indian country in the training arena. It's not something that I typically deal with, but by all means, if you're listening in today and you'd like to reach out to Dr. Congello, I mean, I don't know, Naomi, are you available for people to reach out to if they have questions about this? Absolutely. And I can leave 
my uh, email address. I'm sure you can probably share that with the audience. And I would be happy to provide resources for anyone who's interested in developing this type of clinical. Let's just do that right now. So I'll tell you what I have written down. You can double check me. So I've got Naomi, and it's spelled a little bit differently than I've seen it spelled. So N-E-O-M-I-E. Have I got that right? Correct. Okay. So Naomi.Congello, C-O-N-G-E-L-L-O, at, and then it's the initials of your university. So California State University Channel Islands. So it's C-S-U-C-I dot E-D-U. We've got that yes. right? Correct. Okay. So I'll repeat it one more time in case folks are trying to get this down. Naomi, N-E-O-M-I-E dot Congello, C-O-N-G-E-L-L-O at C-S-U-C-I dot edu. So Naomi, I just think this is really exciting, you know, the various lines that you're in and uh, the opportunities that exist uh, both as far as uh, people really kind of at any level of their career life. I've uh, shared this on air before, but some years ago I taught on the uh, campus of a community college and I was teaching pre-professional students, health uh, pre-professional students. And I was surprised. I want to say the majority, I think, of the students in my classes were second, third careers. They'd uh, been in some other line and they said, we want to transition to the healthcare field. So wherever someone's at, there are opportunities. And if a tribe or tribal entity wants to get involved in the training process, it seems like, you know, the doors are open. So as we're winding up, uh, Naomi, we've covered a lot of ground. Any things that you especially would like to emphasize as we finish? Uh, any take-home messages for my listeners? Yes, absolutely. What I think is interesting for us to emphasize is that we talked about uh, minorities, but I would like to emphasize different ethnicities. That's how I would like to say ethnic, various ethnicities. I think we need healthcare professionals in all ethnicity, right? From all mm -hmm. ethnicities, I should say. Because I live in the small town of Camarillo, and we have a large population of whites, for instance. But we have nurses that are from other ethnicities. Uh -huh. So we need to focus on all ethnicities and not just minorities. Thank you so much, Naomi. Dr. Congello, so much appreciate your time. And thank you to each of you who've joined us today for today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.